Well, welcome to Reverb, everyone. My name is Calvin Pollock, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host and co-executive producer, Alex Helberg. Alex, how you doing? I'm doing great there, Calvin. How are you? Doing good. And I'm doing especially good because today we are pleased to re-welcome to the show Dr. Kendall R. Phillips, Professor of Communication and Rhetorical Studies at Syracuse University. Kendall's research focuses on controversies and conflicts arising around topics like public memory, popular film, and popular culture. Kendall has published several books, including A Place of Darkness, The Rhetoric of Horror in Early American Cinema, Controversial Cinema, The Films That Outraged America, Projected Fears, Horror Films and American Culture, and most recently, the hot off the presses, A Cinema of Hopelessness, The Rhetoric of Rage in 21st Century Popular Culture. Kendall, thanks for joining us once again here on Reverb. It's a, I think I'm not sure if I'm like the uh, classic movie monster that keeps coming back or like a fungus that you think you got rid of and then the ointment doesn't work and there it is again. So, But I am thrilled to be back infecting or infesting you, whatever the case may be. Uh, super excited. Always lovely to talk to you too. Well, we're, we're so excited uh, to have our favorite movie monster back for uh, an episode in, during the, the spooky season. Kendall, actually, I think we want to focus mainly today on your newest book, which isn't, of course, exclusively about horror, although it touches on horror. Um, the thing that really jumped out at me in the intro of this book that I wanted to start with was that you draw a comparison in A Cinema of Hopelessness to uh, the classic 1980 book, A Cinema of Loneliness by Robert Kolker. Um, and I wondered if you could talk about the title of the book and, and that comparison that you draw between, as you write, quote, the films of the 70s reflected a sense of isolation within political and cultural systems that no longer made sense, whereas the cinema of the 2000s, the cinema of now, has reflected an exasperation with systems that can no longer be tolerated. So what can you talk about that comparison to Kolker's work and, and your new work? Sure. I mean, I, I Kolker's book has been just hugely influential. Um, and I would say probably that's the book that I read back in a grad seminar with the wonderful Tom Benson uh, on film. That was, I won't say it was the first, but it was certainly the moment I thought, oh, okay, like I get it. This could be interesting. Um, and actually, uh, a book I wrote earlier called Dark Directions was kind of my trying to add on to his conversation and saying, yes, the 70s were a great time, but there were these cheaper films that were happening that sometimes actually had bigger audiences than your uh, Scorsese films. Uh, and I actually sent him a copy of the book. He was nice in a little note saying, uh, you know, thanks for the book. That the, the planned romance between the two of us did not work out. Um, but yeah, no, I think, you know, and that book in particular, what I loved about that book um, although, you know, again, structured a little differently than what I'm doing here, but was trying to capture this sort of mood that pervaded film and that, that almost felt like a kind of affective grammar that was circulating. The, the lonely, disaffected man, the wandering the streets, the sort of isolation, the stranger in a strange land. Um, and as this project developed, and it, it's funny, I just saw on my Facebook, on the Facebook, uh, those memories, you know, you get, and uh, it was reminding me of the first time I gave the talk of what would become the first real chapter in this book was seven years ago. So it was, this was a long schlog, but as I would say, after, as the book itself began to take shape. I kept thinking that that was what I was wanting to do to catch this kind of cinematic affective grammar and think about what this age was. And I, and I did feel uh, that we are no longer in an age of the kind of existential, um, you know, isolated person wandering, feeling alienated. Uh, we're in an age where that alienated person is coming with a Molotov cocktail to burn the place down. And that was sort of my question, like, how does that feeling uh, get circulated. And I think not, and, and this was the tricky part, and this is probably getting beyond your question, but the tricky part for me was I wanted to be very careful not to equate the political polls, right? You know, because I absolutely think that the right wing in America has taken on uh, really ugly politics. Uh, and I'm, my sympathies are much more for what we might call the left wing and, and particularly like Black Lives Matters and, and, and Occupy Wall Street. So my, my moral judgment is very clearly with the one side and not with the people protecting Confederate monuments. 
But I couldn't help but notice that their, I guess I would call the book, affective orientation was fairly similar, right? Both sides are saying the system is a disaster. Not only is the system a disaster, but it's a, it's an irredeemable disaster. Like it literally, you've got to burn down, whether it's the systems of policing or taxation or healthcare or whatever it is, the system has got to go. And so the question was, how does that feeling circulate in films that were not so much defined by filmmaker as in some ways by popularity? I mean, I, I was, I was, I was not cherry picking easy examples. I was saying, how do I pick the biggest blockbuster uh, out there in the first, you know, part of this this new century, and 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 see what they're kind of circulating. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and I, I I we're very appreciative that you brought up that that sort of you know the equivalency that that some are want to draw sometimes between the protest politics that we see erupting from you know uh, you know as a certain someone said uh, very fine people on both sides right uh, obviously you know we're we're also coming at it from a similar position I think that you are right where you know there are legitimate grievances uh, that have to do with the uh, you know a system that is. I mean, systematically killing certain members of its population versus, uh, you know, a system that is perceived by some to be stripping away entitlements that were previously uh, previously attributed to uh, to a subsection of the population, right? But I, but I think we wanted to, to really zone in on, uh, since you brought up Occupy Wall Street, that's kind of a really nice segue into the first chapter of your book, where from this methodological and theoretical perspective, you're drawing a lot on work, contemporary work that's been done on both affect and uh, imaginaries. So you draw on scholars like Sarah Ahmed and Lauren Berlant uh, to analyze what you're calling affective echoes between political events such as Occupy Wall Street uh, and popular movies like The Purge, Cabin in the Woods, and Snowpiercer, detailing how they help us develop this imagined sense of our position within a system. So could you talk a little bit more about what that concept of affective echoes means? How does that function in your work, and how can it help us better understand the relationship between films and our cultural imaginaries? Yeah, that's that's the heart of the... So thank you for reading the book, first of all, because sometimes people say, tell us about your book that we've not read and have no idea what it's about, and hopefully (laughs) we'll pick up enough to talk about it. So so I deeply appreciate it of actually, and I, and I also apologize that you had to suffer through it. Um, I think it's you know, a fantastic earlier, book. Don't don't you. say that. We, we you, loved Calvin. it. It is an amazing book. All seriously, right. the checks in the mail. Let's be clear. Um, <laughs> so, I, I, in, in earlier work, I uh, had talked about something like this, although I again not quite so affective. So I think that you know, I, I had to come to people like Brian Masumi, but really Sarah Ahmed. She she was the one that that I thought was most helpful for me at a rhetorical level. Like I, I'm assuming and Sedgwick and, and, and even Spinoza, theoretically very interesting stuff, but, but Ahmed was the first time I said, oh, gotcha, like I see, that, that's in the world. I can sort of see that happening. Um, but the early work, I, I, uh, there's a book called Projected Fears that I wrote, and in that I wanted, I, I used the metaphor of resonance with this kind of, again, a kind of diffused sense of feelings and issues in the culture that 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 films, particularly horror films and monsters, were kind of humming sympathetically with. So not so much the people went in and said, that's an allegory for capitalism, or that's an allegory for, you know, anti-Semitism or whatever it might be, but more just like it felt like something that was familiar, even if it wasn't. But I in this project, I really began to think that it was not quite so diffused. That that this these feelings could be identified um, and I knew Occupy felt like, and again, I, I, and I want to be clear here in the book, and again, I'm, I'm dependent on WJT Mitchell, who was, again, the person I went like, oh, yeah, that makes sense, that, you know, Occupy Wall Street as a movement was complicated, and you can certainly say it did good, and you can also say that it, it kind of ultimately didn't do whatever its promise was. But WJT Mitchell suggests that instead of thinking of it as a movement, you think of it as a moment, like this a moment, and then of course that moment was not just in Zuccotti Park, but it was, I think, the moment of the Tea Party, and it was the moment of the uprisings in Tunisia, and that in various places around the world, um, and maybe also led to you know all kinds of other moments. So if I think of it as a moment, how does a moment ripple through time? And and I ran across this essay. I can't remember quite why I ran across it, uh, uh, where uh, Munsterberg uses this term affective echo as a kind of the feeling of an art for him, the feeling of an artist that echoes into the viewing audience. And I thought there's something similar going on 
where you have a moment of so much upheaval. And even if it's not the direct language or even the direct imagery, although I think some of the imagery plays out, it's a kind of way of feeling. And so then I started thinking about what did Occupy feel like? And it felt what made Occupy feel a little different than, than other protests, because we've seen a lot of protests, was I think the, the, the sense that the whole system, you know, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a protest against Wall Street. It was a protest against the interlocking mechanisms of government and culture and economics and industry and labor and labor and the Democrats and the Republicans and the whole system. So it was systemic. And it was about refusing all of it. Like, it was not like, okay, if we fix this law, we're all good, or let's just change this policy. It was, it was, and that was part of the frustration, of course, with Occupy was that they wouldn't come out and say what they wanted because they didn't want anything to do with you, right? They didn't want anything to do with the system. They wanted something entirely new. And of course, that is full of audacity. I mean, that's an audacious suggestion to just like abandon everything and start completely fresh. And of course, obviously, it didn't work, right? I mean, we did. We, I'm not even sure that many actual reforms, uh, certainly to banking, et cetera, happened out of any of that. And while we talk a lot about wage equality, we still don't have a $15 minimum wage. So sorry, like it didn't really seem to. Um, but the feelings, and, and I started seeing those feelings in a lot of places. And so some of those films I talk about, but I think it was in a lot of places. I, I mean, TV shows like The Walking Dead. Um, the Hunger Games, uh, in fact, the whole spate of YA novels and films that are about young children, abandoned, you know, teenagers or whatever, rejecting an authoritarian system entirely. I just thought, this is a fantasy, as you said. This is an imaginary system that feels like it is rippling out from that Occupy moment, or for, I guess, my choice is better metaphor was echoing. And that was sort of how that conceptual framework came together. Yeah, I think the conceptual framework is so rich. Part of why it kind of felt extremely intuitive to me, and I think Alex as well when we were talking about it, was you actually draw on, to take us away from film for a second, you you use the uh, classic Herman Melville novella of Bartleby the Scrivener to kind of instantiate this concept early in the book. Can you, just for any of our listeners who aren't familiar with Bartleby, can you explain that character and how... Bartleby embodies this idea of a rhetoric of refusal. Absolutely. And here I want to give credit to who probably, maybe she'll hear this. I hope she does. Uh, Lisa Villadson, who is a recently ascended professor. She's now a professor of rhetoric uh, at the University of Copenhagen. Uh, Lisa and I were on a panel together and I was doing a different paper about refusal because that's kind of what I've been interested in at, at different levels, political and, and, and film. This The film thing kind of came together. And when we got started, she said, oh, you're going to find mine a weird connection. And so she gives this brilliant paper um, that I mentioned in the end note somewhere uh, about Bartleby the Scrivener. So for those of you who have not run across Melville's odd little novella, uh, Bartleby the Scrivener is a Scrivener, like a person who uh, you know, takes the notes and writes the things and writes the contracts for an attorney. Uh, he is hired, uh, seems to be a perfectly good worker, and then at one point starts responding to requests with the odd phrase, I would prefer not to. And the, you know, his boss sort of takes this as a kind of like, I don't quite know what to respond to that. Like, I don't care what you'd prefer. I'd like you to do it. I prefer not to. This seems like just an odd moment of resistance. And yet it escalates to a kind of almost absurdist level where Bartleby would prefer not to work. Bartleby would prefer not to leave. Bartleby is living in the offices and will not go home. Finally, when Bartleby is arrested, he goes to jail and he would prefer not to eat until eventually Bartleby dies. Now, the odd thing about this, and again, there are a lot of folks, this is why I thank Lisa, because Lisa plugged me into this massive intellectual conversation. So people like Kira Keeling and, and, and Deluge and others, uh, Derrida, are all puzzling over Bartleby as this kind of odd moment at a time when, you know, U.S. capitalism was just starting to flourish and, and Wall Street was just kind of establishing itself as this kind of center of commerce, that you have this Wall Street Scrivener who just decides, I would prefer not to. And what do you do with this kind of peculiar refusal that never makes a demand, that never explains itself, that simply wants to opt out until it finally does? And Bartleby literally opts out of life, leaving our poor attorney thinking, 
I have no idea what to do with this. Like, you know, is, was Bartleby mad or am I mad or what's, you know, what's, what's the whole world there? Um, so that was really a very, very useful way of recognizing the kind of, um, again, imaginative or fictional power, uh, this fantasy of refusal. And I do think there's probably a lot more for folks to think about the, you know, the romance of the hermit, the romance of the nomad, the hitchhiker, the person who gets shipwrecked, like all of these are fantasies of refusal or abandonment or leaving whatever is considered the normal system of life and entering into something that is completely undiscovered, right? I mean, the, 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 the person who's shipwrecked has to construct, I guess I'm having visions of Tom Hanks here, but has to construct a world out of, you know, nothing, like nothing, at least culturally, nothing. There are no cultural tools to do that. And so I think that that fantasy takes on a slightly more violent hue in the first part of this century. And then I think has led to a kind of politics of violent refusal or what I call a kind of politics of rage. Yeah. It's, I, I just have to commend you on this and, and also Lisa Villadson on this really rich analysis of Bartleby the Scrivener, because like the, the commonality, the kind of, echoes if you will are so fascinating that like that story actually takes place on like sort of proto wall street and and bartleby is literally refusing to participate um and then you know your work goes into the politics of occupy wall street uh and how that echoes in these films um so can you just take us through that that first analysis a little bit? How how you see the affective echoes from Occupy Wall Street in movies like Snowpiercer? I'm a huge fan of Snowpiercer, huge fan of Bong Joon Ho generally, but uh, Snowpiercer, Cabin in the Woods is another one you look at in that analysis, and then um, the Purge. Me, what's, the Purge, yeah, yeah. the Purge, the, the one that actually well. was successful at the box office, yeah, the, the the arguably well, in some ways the least, maybe the least artistic, but in some ways the most. I actually recently gave a talk at a, virtually at a conference at Sheffield uh, Hallam University in England um, about the Purge franchise, and I actually think there's a lot of interesting stuff there, but I'll hold off on that later. Um, so I, for me, it started. I saw Snowpiercer, uh, one of the few people that saw it when it was in the theaters because. Uh, Good old Harvey Weinstein uh, decided he didn't like the movie and, and made it a very limited release. I was fortunate to be in Los Angeles, got a chance to go see it, blown away. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm exactly like you, Calvin. I was like, this is this is amazing. This is a brilliant dystopian adventure slash parody slash satire slash whatever else it might be. But what I thought was particularly interesting was that, again, so spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, the film's like seven years old, so that's on you. Um these people are living in a train. They're, they are told the entire earth has been frozen. The only life is on the train. The train is divided into extreme levels of, of class, which is you know fairly similar to the global world we live in, in which our vision of poverty is nothing compared to many parts of the world uh, where poverty is a whole other level uh, of extreme deprivation. And it, it follows a revolution from the back. And what I, but so what I loved about it, so that sounds like a standard Hollywood film. Like that's, you know, we're going to rise up and we're going to change the train and everything's going to happen. What for me was the moment that made the film brilliant was at the end of, near the end of the film, after this violent uprising and they finally get to their destination, the front of the train, they find out that the entire revolution was more or less manufactured to keep order on the train and that they are basically given a, a, a terrifying dilemma, which is either just accept this is the system, drag yourself back to the train, leave the small child who we will be exploiting and killing later, um, or the only other choice is to blow up the train and we all die. And they choose to blow up the train. And that, to me, that was brilliant. That was the kind of ridiculous audacity to say, if I have to live in a system that based on brutal exploitation, I would rather blow the thing up. So I left that film thinking that was really amazing and that was great. Um, didn't know what I would do with it. Again, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of, uh, of Fong Joon-ho, but I don't write about Korea. Like I don't, like I would have to think I'm very careful. I have so much respect for other cultures that I don't want to go barging in and write about films. I would love to read about films from other cultures, but I'm still trying to figure out American culture, whatever that might be. So I, so anyway, so I, I thought it was interesting. Then I saw Cabin in the Woods and again, loved it. And 
couldn't help but notice as I was leaving that we ended up at the same spot where Dana and Marty are in the, again, if you haven't seen it, this is on you. Um, Dana and Marty are in the subterranean temple uh, where they learn of the long-standing bargain that the old evil Lovecraftian gods will stay down as long as we entertain them once a year by tormenting young people in the classic slasher horror film and, and every other culture's variation on torturing young people. And Marty and Dana decide after a little bit of uh, quibbling over it, uh, screw it, right? You know, humanity had its run. And if this is the basis of human survival, then let's not do it. And again, a, a slightly different variation at the end of Snowpiercer, you get a polar bear in the distance that suggests that maybe life is possible. So, you know, we don't know. And of course, at the end of Cabin in the Woods, a giant uh, Lovecraftian horror hand reaches up, bursts through the earth and, and bursts through the cabin and wipes everything out. And then go the credits roll. So you know, the prospect of Cabin in the Woods 2 is, is fairly bleak. Um, so those two films felt like affectively the same film, albeit a slightly different tweak at the ending. One, a glimmer of hope for the future. The other, a complete nihilistic, well, that's the way uh, the, the cookie crumbles. Then I saw The Purge. And it took me a while. I just kept thinking the purge feels right in this, but it is not quite the same because it doesn't. It, the the end of the purge, uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, the purge is uh, set in a dystopian near future where social order is maintained by a fairly right wing kind of religious based American government. Uh, they maintain order by a twelve hour period of lawlessness called the purge, in which there everything's legal. Right, you can kill, murder, rape, whatever, whatever you know, steal, burn things down. Twelve hours, there is absolute anarchy, and that is supposedly keeping all of our negative feelings at bay. Um, the film itself is about a, a, a well-to-do upper-middle-class white family who has lived through all this, perfectly happy in their little uh, bunkered-in fortress middle-class home. And one night, through a series of decisions, first to allow a black homeless man, uh, or at least that's what we're told, he's homeless, uh, who's being pursued by an angry mob of white uh, yuppies, uh, they allow him into the house. Then they refuse to give him up. That leads to the home invasion that is the majority of the film, all the action, all the, the, the horror violence. But for me, the most powerful moment, so, that, so there again is that refusal, that refusal that puts you at danger, the refusal that says I'll no longer be part of the system. For me, the most poignant moment comes uh, at the, near the end of The Purge, um, where convoluted plot, but uh, the people who come to save the family end up wanting to kill the family because it's still The Purge night and all crime is legal. The tables get turned, and the, the main uh, female character, Mary Sandon, who is the, the mother of the family, uh, has the opportunity to purge on these people who've been in her house. Like, so she can take out her revenge on these people who are threatening to kill her and her children. And she refuses. And quite violently refuses. She is very clear. No matter how much she's goaded, she is not going to give in to this cycle of exploitation and brutality and violence, even though she has a right to and even though she knows it's probably in her best interest, right? Because these same people will be around next year when the purge comes. Uh, but she refuses. She will not be part of an exploitative, brutal, savage system uh, that, that, that brings so much violence into the lives uh, of, of her family and, and others. And of course, at the end of the purge, which I feel is in some ways the most realistic ending, the system's still there. Like Mary Sandin makes her moral stand to say, I'm not going to violently uh, incur uh, or, or to inflict my violent wrath on you as you would have on me. But that doesn't really change anything, right? Mary Sandin's going to be, unless she moves to Canada in like 12 months, Mary Sandin and her kids are going to be right back in the same position. So the three of those together, an odd mix, right? Clearly a kind of somewhat fantastic dystopian science fiction film, a meta somewhat comedic uh, slasher parody Lovecraftian something in Cabin and then this kind of much more grounded, brutal, John Carpenter-esque home invasion film. To me, they felt like they were speaking the same affective language. And I wanted to figure out what that language was. That led me back to Occupy, which felt like the same language. And then I started at the end of that, you know, when I started looking at those three films, thinking this is not these are not isolated events. Like I said before, you know, Hunger Games had this. Captain America Winter Soldiers about burning shield to the ground and releasing their, their, all their secrets. Like this is in the air. And so that became that first uh, chapter 
And actually, I sent that off to a journal, and one reviewer loved it and one hated it. And the editor said, well, good luck next time. So um, so thank you to that unpleasant editor, because if it weren't for you, this probably would have been a journal essay, and then I would have walked away. Like, I, I honestly would have just been like, okay, did that, I, I, I'm going to leave. But instead, it sat, and I kept tinkering with it. And then I saw Joker, and I said, this is something more. Like, this is actually a bigger project. We're going to turn this episode now into just a hate a hate fest on reviewer two. Uh, no, I'm just <laughs> or, or again, you know, just yeah, a reflection <laughs> on like how many how many brilliant books have we have we have we lost from articles getting published? Right. You know? <laughs> right. There you go. Great we'll point. take the optimistic. Side. Well, I, the other thing I guess I'll say is, you know, particularly for maybe some because I'm, I'm an old timer dinosaur here. Um, you know, I think I, it's good to tell younger folks, grad students and, and other folks, uh, you know, I'm I'm ancient. And I got, re- and I get rejected, you know, pretty savagely, you know, pretty much like this entire essay is crap and your assumptions are all wrong. And it was like, oh, wow, that kind of hurts after 25 years of doing this. Um, but, it, but, you know, it happens to all of us. But it's also the object lesson to say, if you believe in the project and you think there is something there, don't arrogantly assume that the reviewers are all wrong and that you're the only one who's right. But also don't make that mistake that I think a lot of us do of sticking it in a drawer, feeling ashamed, you know, feeling uh, like a failure having all that imposter syndrome nonsense uh, and letting what could be an interesting project uh, not develop. Not that I'm saying this was an interesting project, but other people I'm sure have had actually interesting projects and then I had this one. So. May we just say this is definitely an interesting project, but but also thank, thank you, for, you for the for injecting that little bit of hope, especially for the graduate students out there uh, who I mean, yeah, I've been there who've definitely kind of felt that as well. But yeah, let's I mean, let's let's talk Joker, though, because this was definitely I think one of the uh, I mean, uh, personally, I thought it was the most provocative and I uh, really enjoyed reading this analysis uh, through your through your book. Um, so in uh, in this chapter, uh, you drew on Lauren Berlant's concept of cruel optimism uh, to analyze the emotional journey of the film's titular character, Arthur Fleck, uh, to become Joker, the classic Batman supervillain uh, uh, that is ubiquitous in American culture, I think it would be fair to say. Uh, So this concept allows you to kind of flesh out uh, what what you're talking about as the competing fantasies of refusing the system that the Joker comes to embody. Um, So just if you could give us a little background, what is cruel optimism and how does that help us see Arthur Fleck's rage as an embodiment of these refusal fantasies. Yeah, I mean, L- Lauren Berlant, who passed away not long ago, and so uh, very sad, uh, had this brilliant book, and I, and I recommend it to anybody interested in culture or, or certainly any interested in affect and feeling um, about this idea of, of cruel optimism, which was, why is it that the person who works, the, the person who's working for less than $15 an hour and having to have three jobs keeps working those three jobs, keeps going home, and then takes classes at, you know, Phoenix or maybe, heaven forbid, through Syracuse or some other place uh, with this idea that that a degree is going to change that when almost every objective empirical fact tells them that probably that's not, like the system itself is not going to really give them whatever fantasy they have. Like maybe the life will get better, but you're not buying the Range Rover. I mean, that's that's not reality. The world is cruel. And this optimism that the system, that that the culture gives us, that you can get there if you just hang on, uh, it it kind of perpetuates that cruelty. And so Berlant's thinking about what is that affective relationship that keeps us occupying a system that is oppressive, whether that's economically or through sexuality, gender or race or whatever it might be. there's a beautiful line in the book, uh, the Cruel Optimism book, um, about when the optimism starts to fray. And when I saw Joker, I immediately—I didn't immediately remember that exact line because I'm old and had forgotten the word for word. Um, but I remembered that sentiment and so immediately found myself rushing back, flipping through, looking for, and then finding that moment and thinking, this is, Joker is not cruel optimism, Joker is the disintegration of that optimism. And where does it go? And for me, what's beautiful about the film is it plays out two competing, mutually exclusive, and yet both completely plausible explanations of what happens when that optimism shatters against the the violence of a world that has treated uh, Arthur Fleck and his his family so so brutally. So for those who don't know, um, you know, Joker is not a Batman film 
as Batman film. Batman actually never appears. Uh, we, we have what may be a young Bruce Wayne. Uh, it really focuses on uh, our main character, Arthur Fleck, uh, who is, it's very Scorsese-esque. I think there's no doubt that it borrows heavily from Taxi Driver and King of Comedy. Uh, Arthur is a really down on his luck uh, clown, the kind of clown who flips the signs in front of a going out of business sale, uh, who shows up at the lowest rent hospital to entertain the children. Uh, and he's not very good at it. He lives in squalor in a tenement with his mother. Uh, he is also, just kind of an odd part of the plot, afflicted with a neurological condition that when he gets anxious, he starts laughing hysterically, uh, uncontrollably laughing. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix plays uh, the part brilliant, uh, absolutely amazing. Um, so the two frames, so the, the story, is, the very basic story is that Arthur's down on his luck. He comes into possession of a handgun. Uh, he's been subjected to violence from strangers for most of the first part of the film. Uh, shortly after acquiring this handgun, he is attacked by three young Wall Street executives on a subway, uh, and he shoots the three of them. From that shooting, the the killer, which is, of course, him uh, wearing his clown makeup, uh, becomes a bit of a folk hero. Now, here's where the two fantasies diverge. There is the fantasy that I'll call the triumphant fantasy, which is that Arthur, having committed this act of violence, begins to transform psychologically and personally into what we will later know as the supervillain that is Joker. Uh, he will inspire violence and chaos. He will embrace this role as agent of chaos. He will meet young Bruce Wayne. His actions will lead. He doesn't do it, but his actions will lead to the murder of Bruce Wayne's family. And at the end, he will somehow magically, and we see a scene where as uh, Bruce Wayne's parents are killed, which most of us know is the beginning of the Batman mythology, um, Arthur smiles and laughs. And when asked why he's laughing, he says, it's a joke. I don't think you'd get it. Now, it's possible that this is all Joker somehow omnisciently and presciently knowing uh, that he has set the stage for years of anarchic, chaotic, supervillain adventures. Or, since we have seen uh, sequences of Arthur in a mental institution throughout the film, little flashbacks, and at the end of the film, he is in a mental institution that looks exactly like the flashback images, it is altogether possible that we have been dealing with a more or less an unreliable narrator that Arthur Fleck is just a guy, an angry, another angry white man with a gun who shot somebody or shot some people and ended up deeper in the institutions that he sought to refuse. So one is a triumphant model of refusal where Joker refuses the systems of society and becomes its villainous plague. The other is that he has a fantasy of triumph, but the reality is he is even deeper into the cruel betrayal and, and brutality of a system that doesn't care about him uh, and that he will never escape and he will die in this system. So those are the two fantasies. You can play those out. Like you can watch the film in either way and see plenty of textual evidence. What was the key for me, and I'm glad to hear you like it because this, when I came up with this idea, it sounded like the stupidest analytical move in the history of, for me, a lot of previously stupid analytical moves. And that was to read Joker as a musical. Right. Now, in fairness, nobody walked out of Joker and said, that was the best musical I've seen since, you know, Guys and Dolls. Hey, that was good. But I couldn't help but on multiple, and this is when I really kept watching and thinking, I got to figure out. I knew for me, Joker is, I'll say, the quintessential film for the first part of the 21st century. Like Joker is, if you want to capture the mood of this country, and I would say other countries, at that moment, Joker was it. Like that was the poster child for how we felt. But I wanted to understand how that was working. And I kept coming back to the music, right? That, that music appears in multiple places and importantly, like again, music's always in film. That, that's not a big shock. Uh, but the, the, the non-diegetic music uh, and probably the, the most famous sequence is the, the use of Gary Glitter, unfortunate use of Gary, Gary Glitter's uh, song uh, as Joker is dancing down the stairs. That's the one everybody saw. Everybody kind of identifies. Uh, the use of the Cream song, the use of a Jimmy Durante song, Smile. Each of those moments where this external music sort of comes in to fill in the emotional gap and guide us through the scene, that's right. So each of those are moments where it looks like he's becoming Joker, he's becoming successful, he's violently refusing the system. So the external music created that cue. There were also moments in the film of internal music where Arthur's singing and dancing. Um, the, the, when he's attacked on the subway, the subway attackers are singing, bring in the clowns or send in the clowns. Um, 
those were moments where the film felt like it was shifting its orientation towards a more negative, this pessimistic, this, this increasing cruelty and, and brutality. And so I, want, I kept sort of seeing that and then working through how those music, just like with the musical, the music cues us a shift in fantasy frame. Right, So if you think of your classic musical, we're all at the factory working, and then someone says, let's stop working, and then we dance, and we sing, and we have all the thing. At the end of the musical number, we all go back to work. Right, So it's this little disruption. Uh, and there's, again, Richard Dyer and others, Steve Cohan and others are, are the people who, 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 who taught me that. So I, I appreciate the, the wise uh, musical scholars who, who, who gave that frame. But once you start thinking about music as providing a shift of feeling and, and meaning frame, then it's just a matter of kind of looking to say, okay, how are those working in Joker? And to realize, at least for me, it was pretty systematic. Like every time this external music comes in with a big emotional swell, it's a triumphant moment for Arthur. Every time there's music, dancing, et cetera, in the film, the, the diegetic music, it's always leading to tragedy, to sadness, to shock, to pain, to cruelty and violence. Yeah, I, I especially appreciated that. I was actually going to ask the question a little bit more bluntly, you know, like, why should we think about Joker as a musical? Because I thought that was such a, I mean, personally, for me, it resonated a lot with my own, I guess, affective structures um, because of some other cinema of hopelessness that I've seen in the past. Are you familiar with uh, Lars von Trier's film uh, Dancer in the Dark? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Bjork. Come on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was, that was one, at least for me, that really resonated on that same level where the music itself is actually cueing uh, you know, for those of you who don't know, it's about a uh, it's about a, uh, a lower class or working class woman named uh, Selma who's slowly going blind uh, uh, and sort of losing everything in her life. Uh, and you know, it's Lars von Trier, so it's you know starts pretty low and just you know it's a roller coaster uh, <laughs> roller coaster ride down from there. Um, but the music in that film, I mean, some people have called it an anti musical because the music signals these moments where Selma has these elaborate fantasies of how her life could be better, right? Or how her life is going to get better. The music will always be there to catch her when she falls. I don't mind it at all. If you're having a ball, this is your musical. I'll always be there to catch you. You will always be there to catch and yet, once the music dies down, we go back to that same bleak reality, uh, and uh, and yeah, that feeling of hopelessness is what we're left with. So I don't know. For me, that really resonated in your analysis with the Joker, just because I've I've seen it in a lot of other uh, similarly hopeless films uh, where there is that sort of expression of hopelessness and rage. Yeah, I mean, I would say it, it, again analytically, when it started, it seemed like the stupidest idea ever. Um, but I, uh, like I said, I'm appreciative of the musical scholars I was able to read. I also want to give a shout out to uh, Jennifer Lemessier. I always say her name wrong. Sorry, Jennifer. Um, but who's a, a faculty out at Colgate uh, near me who studies rhetoric and dance because I was really struggling with the, if people have seen Joker, you know, there's this kind of odd Joker dance that he does that isn't quite in time to music. And it seems like somewhere between, a, 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 you know, expressionist dance and uh, and uh, like uh, body contortion. It's, it's almost painful to watch. Uh, and so Jennifer was really gracious and talk. I sat on the phone with her for probably an hour just saying, help me understand this. Like I am not a dancer. My body is my enemy. I really wish I was not in it. And it wishes the same. So we're kind of at odds. Um, but, you know, I don't understand this. And I'd read her essay. She had a wonderful one in RSQ on, on Childish Gambina that was super, super smart. And I was like, I, I see what you're doing. I want to understand that enough to make sense. And then thanks to her patience and, and, and kindness, I got closer. I don't, I don't know that I certainly didn't do it as well as she would have done it or other folks who are more in the embodied rhetoric side. Um, but it did seem like, as with a musical, you know, you think about a musical, when the rhythm starts, when the beat, the beat starts, everybody starts dancing. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, you could be the, back, the, the background player, and you're like, yeah, okay, here we go. Here comes the dance, and we're going to dance in the background. So it's almost as if the music takes over the entire scene, all the bodies in it, and kind of makes them into expressions of this feeling. And there was, there was Joaquin Phoenix as Arthur and then kind of seemingly transforming into Joker, having the same bodily experience to music that was not in the world. Like it was actually the, the non-diegetic uh, music of the, the score 
that it, the closest we had to something that would explain. I mean, it wasn't perfectly in time with that, but it was the closest in tone and feeling to his bodily contortions. So it starts to go like, something's happening. Like his body is reading an affect that is not in the narrative. Like there's something else going on here. And that, of course, led me back to saying, this is... I'm not saying it is a musical, but it is borrowing heavily from the rhetorical frames of the musical genre. Yeah, and I think that reading also is really provocative in light of these two possible uh, understandings of what's actually happening in the film. Um, like to sort of see that that rupture between reality and fantasy as playing out also in you know potential readings of what's actually going on in the movie. Um, but I also really appreciated that you, uh, you know, discuss the kind of overt and and subtler homages to Scorsese in Joker, and and I, I bring that up because I want to move us to talking about Marvel, which is a major focus. <laughs> Good segue. Of, of, well of done. The book. Nicely well, done. well, because you know, in these broader conversations, in these broader conversations about cinema. We have this weird dichotomy between like Scorsese fans on the one hand and Marvel <laughs> fans on the other. And I gather, Kendall, that you're a fan of both. What I think is really interesting about how you treat Joker on the one hand and Marvel on the other is that Joker is kind of capturing this this sense of, of extreme alienation and, and of potential violent refusal of the system, whereas Marvel and this could just be me reading into your analysis. Marvel to me is very much in the system. It's very much legitimating the system, but along with that legitimation is coming these, these echoes that you talk about of distrust, betrayal, um, and, and loss and grief. So I wonder if you could just at a high level, tell us about how you approach the MCU in this book and, and where you see this fitting into the rhetoric of refusal and, you know, kind of cinema of hopelessness more generally. Yeah, I, I would say, and this may be of interest to no one, but when, when this project was sort of first getting conceptualized, my original plan um, was to stay in the horror genre. Uh, and I had an idea of a chapter around grief because there are a lot of horror films like The Babadook and others that were kind of picked up grief. And I can't really, there were some other things. Um, but then, you know, Joker made me start thinking that this is wider. And again, looking at, you know, the YA films and, and TV shows like Walking Dead. And there was an NBC did a version of Brave New World that was similarly kind of audacious refusal stuff. And I started thinking, I don't think this is just horror, even though that's my playground. That's that's the sandbox I feel most comfortable. I wanted to get bigger. And so if you want to say, I'm trying to capture, a la uh, Kolker's book, I want to capture something like a, not the dominant, but I'll say a prominent affective mood of the country in the first part of the 21st century, you got to deal with the 800-pound rhinoceros raging through a uh, box office. That's the Marvel monstrosity. I mean, Marvel is, is so massive and so incredible. And I, and, I, I, and I do love Marvel, but I mean incredible just at the complexity and the dominance. I mean, it, it, it's, I will be bold enough to say we've never seen the like of this in the history of film. Um, such an overwhelming dominance, not just by a studio, but by a particular sort of arc of this, this transmedial um, multiple film franchise universe, right? Um, so then I looked and said, well, there goes the project, right? Because you're talking about hopelessness and like, there you are. Um, and I think for me, the, the gel moment uh, was Infinity War, which, you know, has the problem that we kind of all knew there was going to be another film. In my, in my deepest of hearts, if I was in charge of the universe uh, or Marvel, which is probably a little more manageable, uh, if I was in charge of Marvel, I would have never released that there was going to be a second film. I would have put Infinity War out. I would have had audiences see that final moment where Thanos has won. He's killed half the universe and he sits down and has a little smile and then it goes to black. I would have like that would have been the greatest moment in the history just listing because even knowing publicly that there was going to be another film and it was already speculation about how they're going to deal with it. I still, as I, as I put in the book, you know, I, I sat with audiences those first few weeks because uh, I saw it multiple times and it was always stunned silence and or someone saying, you know, as, as I write the book, what the fuck, right? You know I mean, like, how could you do that? Like, you, that's not possible. They're the event. So that failure made me go back to the, the franchise and recognize that, that failure was always this overarching theme. 
the prospect of failure, the prospect of not being good enough, the prospect that you wouldn't be willing to sacrifice yourself. That was an undercurrent. But the one that really cinched it for me when I said, you know what, this is part of this project, or at least I thought, <laughs> we'll see if other people think. But for me, it became, it became part of the project when I noticed this recurring, quite powerful theme of, betray of betrayal, and not just betrayal, but father betrayal. And so I found myself going back to the amazing work of Josh Gunn uh, and, and, and much of his work, but certainly the piece he wrote about War of the Worlds and the importance of the Lacanian father in, in these kinds of films and realizing that, you know, Thor Ragnarok is about Odin's betrayal. Black Panther is about T'Chaka's betrayal. Um, Guardians of the Galaxy 2 is about uh, Star-Lord's father's betrayal, right? So you get this and then that theme of betrayal, again, you know, you think about Captain America's uh, Civil War and Captain America, um, the Winter Soldier, about betrayal, about betrayal by people in authority, by consequences of that betrayal. And I started saying, as much as I think you're absolutely right, Calvin, that MCU is about the system. And no, I mean, they're explicit. These are no longer vigilante heroes like the original Batman or, or Spider-Man or Daredevil, where it's like, they're vigilantes, the cops want to get them. These are the Avengers, like the cop, they're... Uber cops, right? They are the system par excellence. And yet they are riddled with fear of failure, with grief and loss, and with this arching, this overarching betrayal that is what sets the stage for that moment at the end of Infinity War where they have failed. Utterly and completely, they failed. And that failure to me felt so true. And it felt so much like the 21st century. And as I write in the book, it felt so much like the 2016 election, where if you're like me, you sat watching the New York Times predictor dial flipping the wrong way and thinking, no, no, wait, but what about Pennsylvania? What well, don't, no, maybe Oklahoma will go the right, you know, and you just watched as everything fell apart. And then there was, and for a lot of us, the day after the election was the beginning of the National Communication Association National Convention, and it was like a wake. It was like a bomb had gone off. Everybody was just sobbing and hugging each other and saying, it's going to be okay. And I thought that moment felt so much like what Infinity War would be a few years later, that this has to be the end of the book. Like This is the moment where all that feeling comes together in a single moment where all your heroes, hampered by their grief, hampered by the betrayal, hampered by their fear of failure, have failed. And what do you do? There's something so fascinating about this as a, a way to understand mainstream American politics over the last five years, because it feels like in certain ways, like materially, the structure of the government, the structure of our economy has not changed that much. But there's been this intense drama between giant characters like Hillary and Trump and, you know, and even like the, the major wings of the parties. And and so I found this just so profound, like the idea that that the MCU is both legitimizing the system, um, but also there's just this latent chaos within the system that, it, you know, it's 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 flitting from one extreme to the other. There's there's extreme rancor between the parties, even as the kind of underlying structure is not changing very much from from election to election. And in your analysis of uh, Avengers Endgame, you start to look at the ways that um, there are some affective echoes between that movie and the kind of nostalgic optimism of it and the Biden campaign, uh, the, the ultimately successful Biden campaign. Can you talk about that? Like how, how you see the kind of most recent election and the most recent Avengers movie as kind of echoing between each other. So I started writing the conclusion. So Endgame came out and, and I thought, okay, it was about the time I needed to finish the book. I thought this is okay. This is good because it was, as, as you've suggested, it felt like the Biden campaign, which was going on at the same time, the build back better. So those of you who haven't seen Endgame, Biggest film of all time. What are you people doing? Get out and watch a film. Um, Endgame plot involves the most convoluted plot line ever, time travel, because that's what you have to do to solve killing half the universe. Um, the Avengers reassemble. Uh, they go back in time. They collect the Infinity Stones from other alternate realities. They use those to snap everybody back into existence. Um, and that felt, again, that part felt like the Biden campaign. 
it was very much a, we want to go back to the Obama era. We want to collect the things that worked. We want to rebuild things in a new way. Like we're going to go get the good stuff. And of course, most of Endgame, uh, the plot of Endgame is a kind of nostalgic trip back through the history of the MCU. It's the Avengers going back to the first Avengers movies. Uh, it's going back to Captain America, you know, his history. It's going back to the original Guardians of the Galaxy. It's going back to these moments of the preceding decade to sort of say, wasn't that great? Wasn't that great? And if you listen to Biden's rhetoric, it was, remember how good things were before Trump? Let's go back and do that, right? So that was very much endgame. And I'll say uh, the part that was particularly, you know, powerful and difficult was as I was writing the conclusion, I remember sort of lingering around the conclusion because I didn't want, I well, I was going to write it as soon as the election was over. And then I kept, you know, there was this constant mire over Georgia and Arizona and Pennsylvania and there are going to be lawsuits. And so I just kept finding myself not wanting to start it until that started to feel like it was resolved. And then January 5th, I thought, well, I've got to, st- God, I'm like, I have a deadline. Like the, the, the a conclusion has to start coming out of these fingers one way or the other. So I started writing, wrote some parts of it. Then January 6th happens. And I think, and I remember thinking, well, today's the day, like once it's certified legally game over, like there's no change. Then the insurrection happened. And for me, that felt so much like the third act of Endgame, where just when you think it's over and they've won, back comes Thanos for this increasingly ugly, bloody, savage battle. And that is what we were watching. And for me, that those images, because I had my document on one screen and CNN on the other, all that rage, all that violence, all that willingness to burn down the flag in the name of the flag, um, it seemed to all come together there. And I know some people may say you're trivializing this by talking about it in relation to a movie, but the movies are the imagination of our culture. And I felt like this was the purge. This was refusing the train and Snowpiercer. This was uh, Arthur Flex, the violent mob at the end of Joker as Arthur's dancing in front of the crowd and the flame and Gotham is in flames, right? Here we had DC, not exactly in flames, but we had people dying and in the Capitol and threatening and with zip ties. And it felt like all of that rage that has wanted to refuse the system exploded on national television in the halls of Congress. Um, And I felt like that to me was the emotional end of my journey with the book. And I thought a good place to sort of say, this is where we are. Now, the real question, as with Endgame is, if you put it back together, what do you do? And hopefully you do something different. But that that's yet to be determined question. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, that's that is definitely a provocative question that the book I think raised for both Calvin and I as we were reading through it, and um, and I mean just in general, I thought that uh, this this book, the value the value of it, and other books that have been written, you know, on the rhetoric of uh, popular film and popular culture, is such a good way in for people who are trying to understand things like affect and imaginaries uh, that are otherwise very abstract and kind of difficult to understand. Understand, they become concretized in these spaces where we're thinking about how we share these emotional st- structures of feeling uh, with other people. Um, and as you, I, I thought, quite beautifully put it in your uh, introduction, uh, movie theaters themselves are kind of the perfect place to understand how affective circulation works in a public setting, right? Uh, you wrote this this quote that I have here. Uh, Anyone who has attended a film in a crowded theater knows the powerful way feelings of dread or mirth can circulate among an audience and amplify the horrific or comedic actions on the screen. Uh, So to me, this underscored this very real sense of, you know, I, I might call it magic, right? Movie magic that one can experience uh, attending a film in person. But, you know, it's that feeling of a shared affect where we are all kind of coming together uh, to experience something simultaneously uh, as a as a collective, which is in itself kind of a hopeful feeling, right? Now, of course, uh, you know, 2020 and 2021 being the years that they were, uh, uh, you know, kind of hopeless times for a lot of different reasons, but especially for people working in the movie theater industry, right? This was a year where basically nobody could go and see movies together in a theater. Um, so, so I want to try and, uh, 
have us end on a little bit more of a hopeful note. Uh, so, t- <laughs> but the book's called Hopelessness. Come on, Alex, give me a break. I didn't write the cinema of hopefulness. I'm leaving. You got to hear both sides. You got to hear both, both sides. sides is yeah, <laughs> right, right. So we can we can we can hope to end on a hopeful note here. Um, I guess in in this time that we're living through right now, uh, what do you feel like we can do to recapture that sense of affective movie magic uh, in the age of COVID, in the age of on-demand streaming? How have you found ways to recapture that sense of uh, of magic, experiencing the same thing as others while you are you know consuming culture with them? Yeah, I th- well, I think for me, and this may be similar to Endgame, the the kind of dominant affect, at least for people, I would say in my age bracket, and and I think the rest of you are being uh, have to deal with it whether you like it or not, has been nostalgia, right? So it has been you know the final Daniel Craig James Bond, um, the Ghostbusters uh, movie coming out, like a whole spate of uh, reboots and remakes and returns to older characters, older television series, the Friends reunion. And I think that's a natural thing. I get, you know, I I think about this period in a weird way as, and this is, again, probably a horrible way of putting it, but a kind of slow-moving September 11th, where September 11th was a singular moment, uh, and and I'm like most people, I remember it well and painfully, um, that shocked all of us because we didn't think this could happen. Like, in addition to the horrible loss of life and the destruction, and, and those were the most important things. But affectively, I think the biggest sh- was the shock. Like, this can't happen here. Like, this isn't supposed to happen. And I remember, again, I was teaching the day and the morning it happened. Um, and that was very much the sentiment of all my students was like, but, but wasn't this, you know, this wasn't supposed to happen. And then, of course, immediately after 9-11, we went into this protracted period of nostalgia. And, and Barb Biesecker writes about this in her work on uh, World War II, this kind of move back to these uh, consoling rhetorics of the Second World War. And so I think something like that's happening now. We're, we're kind of finding ourselves returning to um, older pop culture, uh, seeking back to a time when maybe what some of us felt like was a simpler time. So here's my, my thinking about that, though, is the the knee jerk reaction is to say nostalgia is bad and and often it is right so nostalgia has a bad uh has a bad rap and 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 a well earned uh, bad reputation for being used by people uh to push away progressive attitudes uh to push away others to return to when we say going back to the good old days or say make america great again we usually mean for our kind and our people and not for you who are suffering and if you suffer again well tough because america's great again right so um there's a certain brutality to a version of nostalgia, but I, that is not the only tone of nostalgia, right? You can go back and say, what were the values that we aspired to? And I think if anything in America, you know, maybe the, our biggest strength has been, we have been eloquent in, in crafting values that we aspire to. And probably our biggest crime is we have rarely lived up to that eloquence. Um, a point that Dr. King made in 1963, much better than I did, right? We, 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 we're happy to sign promissory notes for truth, liberty, and justice for all. We're not so good at fulfilling it. But there could be a nostalgia. And, and, I, and I think Joe Biden has tried to enact this rhetorically. I'm not entirely sure the policies have done it. But there is a rhetorical nostalgia that would say, let's go back to those principles that we aspired to right? That we aspired to everyone having the right to live their life, right? And, and to buy a cake, no matter who you're marrying and use the bathroom that you choose to use. And it's okay. If your children are taught things that other children are taught, that's okay. Like though it's okay. If we tax people to build a bridge, like, cause we all use the bridge. Like there are things that we once valued collectively. That was a balance between your individual Liberty and our common collective good. And that we could be a country that embraced new people because we knew they were bringing things new. And that was good. We liked newness. We wanted people to come here and seek opportunity because that made us good. And those were values that were there that are still there circulating in our public texts and our popular culture. I would love to see a nostalgia that goes back to revisit those values, not in a simplistic, let's make it like it was, but let's go back and figure out what we wanted to be, talk about what that could be, and then try to find a way to get there together. Whether that happens or not, that's an increasingly difficult question to answer. Well, Kendall Phillips, I'm so glad that you took us to 
a place of you know optimistic nostalgia there at the end because we feel a lot of optimistic nostalgia for our first episode with you uh we're so we're so excited to have had you back today and um yeah this has been a fantastic conversation you already kind of plugged the book is there anything that you want to plug or, or make our listeners aware of i will um, you know i'm gonna so i will shamelessly plug, plug as, as i talked to alex and calvin about earlier i have somehow ended up as the host god help you of a podcast through uh, national public radio uh produced by waer the podcast is called pop life uh, it is not an academic intellectual show like my dear friends are doing here it is a, a wider a conversation about popular culture that includes some academics but also writers creators, et cetera. Um, that's available on Spotify. It's You can find it on the NPR website. You can find it at WAER. Uh, we just had our first episode. We've got our Halloween episode coming up uh, this in a couple of weeks, uh, just before Halloween. Uh, and then we'll be releasing about two a month. Uh, so once people have listened to this amazing podcast and Alex and Calvin telling you all about the world of rhetoric and culture, and you want to slum it down with me, roll on down the Spotify dial, find me on Pop Life, and you can hear my annoying voice even longer. Amazing. Thank you, Kendall. Uh, we will post a link to Pop Life. By the way, one of my favorite Prince songs. Just wanted to get Absolutely. That <laughs> we'll drop a little sample of that in here. But thank you once again for being with us. Uh, this was so much fun. And um, yeah, thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Bye bye, everyone. Bye bye. Our show today was produced and edited by Calvin Pollock and Alex Helberg. Reverb's co-producers are Sophie Wadzak, Ben Williams, and Mike Loudenbach. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Android, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. Follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. If you enjoyed this episode, write a review, share it with a colleague or a friend. We appreciate all of your support.